Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem, and this is the Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we covered a large chunk of material, chapters 8, 9, and 10, that spoke about two main topics, the first being the wars that David fought in order to secure the realm, and the second, the noble treatment that David extends to Mephibosheth the son of Yonatan. In David's wars, he conquered the peoples to the east, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites, the people to the south, the Amalekites, the peoples to the north, the Arameans of Damascus and Sova, and the peoples to the west, namely the Philistines. And in so doing, for the very first time in Israelite history, David secured the tribes of Israel from oppression. So this obviously was an unprecedented accomplishment and moment. That is not to say that wars are not brutal or that wars are not cruel. Ancient history is full of accounts of wars. The people of Israel were constantly being attacked and threatened by the kingdoms around them, and David finally creates a situation where the tribes of Israel are safe. And for that, the text remembers him with great respect and awe. At the same time, the account pointed out that David also established a rule which was predicated upon justice and righteousness vis-a-vis his own citizens. This was illustrated by his treatment of Mephibosheth, the grandson of his archenemy Shaul, whom David extends kindness to in fulfillment of his pledge to Yonatan to Jonathan. In spite of the fact that, of course, this could potentially introduce instability for his own dynasty. But for David, keeping the pledge keeping his oath to Jonathan was paramount, and therefore the line of Shaul was not extirpated. By the time we get to the end of chapter 10, it seems as if David is unstoppable, and it seems as if the nobility of his reign knows no end. All of this comes to an abrupt conclusion with the events of chapters 11 and 12. Chapters 11 and 12 really serve as the core of the second book of Samuel and divide the first half of the book from the second half of the book. If the first half of the book was about David ascendant, was about David successful, was about David in all of his shining glory, The second half of the book of Samuel, the second book of Samuel, will be about David in retreat, David under attack, 
David ignominious, David a human being and not a God. Effectively, the pivot point between the first half of the book and the second half of the book, chapters 11 and 12, constitute the turning point for this particular narrative. The events that happen, if I were to title them, the episode of David and Bathsheba. So this will be the subject of our next couple of podcasts, and we will consider these events insofar as the larger picture is concerned and the profound impact that David and Bathsheba will have on the remainder of David's reign. Chapter 11 begins with a report. It was the turning of the year, the time when the kings go out. David sent Yoav and his servants with him and all of the people of Israel to attack the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah, the capital city. David was dwelling in Jerusalem. And with this introductory verse, there is already an implied critique. At the time of year when the kings go out to battle, call that the late spring or the early summer, the winter rains have passed, the roads are now passable, there is provision in the fields for the animals of the armies to be able to eat. This is a time when kings conduct wars, and in fact, David's men were conducting a war. They were attacking the Ammonites on the eastern side of the Ardennes. They were besieging their capital city. But David was nowhere to be seen in verse number one. He was not leading his troops into battle. He was not inspiring them to be victorious. Instead, he was back in Jerusalem. So the first verse begins with the report of a king who is not fulfilling his kingly responsibilities to lead his people when they fight wars. He is sending his army, sending his general Yoav, and remaining behind in Jerusalem, relaxed, complacent, and at peace. It was at the time of evening. David awoke from his bed. He walked upon the roof of the king's palace, and he saw a woman washing from upon the roof where he was, and the woman was very beautiful. So not only is David in Jerusalem rather than with his men in battle, but he also happens to be taking an afternoon nap. And not only is he taking an afternoon nap, even as his men are risking their lives, But as he wakes up from that nap, he strolls upon the roof of the palace, intentionally perhaps, not clear, hoping to catch a glimpse of this beautiful woman who was washing, or is it perhaps serendipity? It is not clear. What is clear, however, is that whatever David is doing is completely incongruous with his responsibilities as king of the people of Israel. David sent messengers, and he inquired concerning the woman. 
He responded, that is the messenger, verse number three, Halozot bat sheva bat Eliham, Eshet Uriah Hachiti. Is this not bat sheva, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah Hachiti? David sent messengers and he took her. She came to him and he lay with her and she had been sanctifying herself from her defilement, and she returned to her own home. So in this brief description, there are an awful lot of reports of messengers being sent, of David inquiring, of David taking, of David lying with this beautiful woman. What's important for our purposes is to note that there are, in fact, a series of steps that David must take in order for him to actually realize his evil plan. That is to say, David is deliberate, and David is intentional, and David makes use of his kingly powers to send those messengers in order to allow his plan to be realized. Most shockingly, when David inquires about the identity of the woman, he is told, and in the Hebrew it is a rhetorical statement rather than a general statement, is this not Batsheva, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah Hachiti, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It is a rhetorical question, which is to say, don't you know who it is? Is it not obvious who it is? So without some of the later material in the book, we would not realize the full import of these words. So for a moment, we jump forward to chapter 23 of the second book of Samuel, almost at the very end of the book, where there is a list of the so-called mighty men. These are the names of David's mighty men. And we have a very, very interesting list of individuals that demonstrated their extreme heroism as well as their unbelievable loyalty to their commander-in-chief, David. And some of the names we recognize from other parts of the book of Samuel, and some of the names we do not, many of them we have never heard of before, but for all posterity, these names are preserved in order to highlight the extreme devotion of these men to the cause and to their king. And most glaringly, the final name on the list, the 37th mighty men, which is mentioned, is none other than Uriah the Hittite, namely the husband of Bathsheba. Effectively, what that means is that when David sends messengers to inquire about the identity of the woman whom he has seen from his rooftop washing, it turns out that that woman is none other than the husband of one of David's most loyal fighters, one of his mighty men, who currently is risking his life at Rabbah along with Yoav and the rest of the army in order to conquer the Ammonites and bring glory to the king. So if we thought that David's action was diabolical, 
initially, we must now raise that assessment a number of orders of magnitude. Something now happens which could have been foreseen, should have been foreseen, but was not. Verse number five reports, the woman became pregnant. She sent and she said to to David, I am pregnant. This is the first time that Bathsheba's words have been reported in the story. Clearly, there is some sort of a discussion to be had about Bathsheba's role. But this much is clear. David is the king. The power dynamic is very much in his favor. Whatever Bathsheba may have felt, it is clear that she did not feel that she could oppose his advances. She now reports that she is pregnant, which complicates matters because it will become quite clear, since Uriah is at the front, that someone else must be the father of that child. David now sends messengers once again, this time to Yoav at the front, and he tells him, Send for me Uriah Hachiti, and Yoav does so. When Uriah arrives, David inquires concerning his welfare, the welfare of Yoav and the people, how the battle is going. And David tells Uriah to go home, to wash up, and to relax. Uriah leaves the palace of the king, followed by an entourage provided by the king, but it actually turns out that he sleeps at the entrance to the palace with the rest of the king's servants and refuses to go home. When David is told as much, he inquires of Uriah, you have come from a very far journey. Why didn't you go to your own house? Uriah now responds with a damning statement in verse number 11. Vayomer Uriah el David, Uriah said to David, the Ark of the Covenant and the people of Israel and Yehudah are dwelling in Sukkot. My master Yoav and the servants of my master, all of them are encamped in the field. Will I now come to my house to eat and to drink and to sleep with my wife? Chayecha nafshecha, by your life, I would never do such a thing. There is a general discussion among the commentaries, ancient and modern. Does Uriah suspect anything at this point? Has perhaps the word spread in the palace? The rumors began to fly that David has in fact slept with Uriah's wife? Or is Uriah completely unaware and naive? Whatever the case may be, it is clear that the words that he utters are directed to David with great force, even though David is not implicated explicitly. As Uriah puts it, what kind of a man do you think I am? The people, my army, are all in the field. 
in situations of great discomfort, fighting a battle, fighting a war. The Ark of the Lord is with them. How could I possibly think for a moment of enjoying myself at a time like this? To go home, to eat and to drink and to sleep with my wife. God forbid, says Uriah, by your life, I could never do such a thing. And of course, the accusation hangs in the air because that is precisely what David has done and worse. David does not relent. He calls upon Uriah to remain in Jerusalem for the next day as well. And in the meantime, David summons him once again for a banquet and he eats before him and he drinks and he becomes inebriated, but he does not go home. He does not sleep with his wife. So effectively, even though Uriah is quote-unquote inebriated, he does not lose his composure. He does not lose sight of the fact of what is important and what is good and what is just. And all of this, again, in glaring contrast to his king. In the morning, David writes a message to Yoav, and in that message, he says, place Uriah against the battlefront where the war is very, very rough. Retreat from him so that he will be struck down and killed. Effectively, David now writes an order to Yoav to allow Uriah to be killed in battle. The people around him, the Israelites, are told to retreat, and Uriah will be exposed to the enemy fire and will die. What a shocking command that David utters. But even more shocking than that, David sends the message with Uriah. Effectively, Uriah therefore delivers his own death warrant to Yoav. But most remarkably, and this I think sheds a tremendous amount of light on Uriah's character, he doesn't look at the note on the way. He doesn't open the letter. As if to suggest, even if he suspected the king of something, Uriah is such a rare and noble character that he would never betray the trust that the king puts in him by reading that missive. But that missive turns out to be the command that Uriah should be put to death. So what we have in this diabolical episode is a series of steps, one more serious than the other, one more evil than the other, as David determinedly will cover his crime. So what started out perhaps as a moment of passion, but even that is hard to argue, given the fact that there were multiple steps involved and multiple messengers sent 
and multiple inquiries made until Bathsheba was in David's clutches. But now that the crime has been done, David is determined that he will not be held accountable in the docket of public opinion. And if that means that Uriah must die, so be it. So what started out as adultery is about to become murder. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.